W233AH Monticello. Hello, 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 and welcome to The Local Edition, news and information to keep you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host for this Thursday evening, Patricio Robayo. In the second half of the show, we'll get to learn about News Lab at Penn State and how they're keeping tabs on local government. But first, it's Thursday on The Local Edition, and every Thursday we connect with the Times Union Hudson Valley Bureau. Joining us on the phone now is the managing editor, who will provide some updates on what's happening in the Hudson Valley. Welcome back to the show, Philip. Happy New Year. The governor had a busy last couple of days of the year. It seems like a number of bills were signed into law. What can you tell us? Yeah, so some of these were signed last minute. Others were signed earlier in the year. But we have a roundup of all the new laws that are taking effect in 2024. And some of the highlights, especially for our region, I would say, are the increase in minimum wage across the state. The minimum wage is now $15 an hour, and it's $16 for employees in New York City, Long Island, and Westchester. That's something that had been pushed for a while, and it's a kind of you know, uh, expansion, really, of, of a law that was initially passed in the city to, to increase the minimum wage there. Um, another one that I think is going to be of high interest to particularly Hudson Valley listeners is a bill that restricts the ability of utilities to backfill. Previously, I think there were very few limitations on how far back uh, utility companies could backfill customers, which became a big issue for particularly Hudson Valley uh, utility customers who use Central Hudson when they quite famously botched the rollout of a new billing system in September of 2021, which caused all kinds of billing issues and, and all, and customers to receive back bills like months later than when they were initially due. This new bill, uh, is, it's actually an amendment to the public service law. And it says that utilities cannot back bill, um, after failing to bill for more than two months. And it also requires utilities to send every, uh, with every bill, the records of the customer at that address for the past two years in an attempt really to try to provide a little bit more clarity on, on how and why customers are getting billed what they are, which has been a huge point of contention for central Hudson customers in particular. This was a bill that was pushed or that was drafted by State Senator Michelle Hinchy and Assemblyman Jonathan Jacobson in response to the Central Hudson billing debacle. They both represent them in Hudson Valley. And then another one that I thought was pretty interesting was another amendment to public health law that requires the State Department of Health to establish a statewide community doula directory and also enable Medicaid reimbursement for Medicaid recipients who use doula services. So this is an, an attempt to really to expand doula services or, or birth care services for residents on Medicaid in New York State and kind of bring that a little more centrally under the Medicaid auspices. Those are a couple of the highlights 
to me of, of new laws that took effect on Jan 1. Definitely a busy end of the year season for the governor. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a busy season. The governor, as she does, or he does in the past, <laughs> pretty much every year, with signing bills that had come to their death maybe months before, but maybe didn't get signed until late December. And then, of course, yesterday, um, lawmakers were back in session for the uh, opening of the 2024 legislative session, which was pretty brief. The Senate and the Assembly were only in session for about an hour, essentially just to give uh, State Senate Majority Leader Andrew Stewart-Cousins and Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty uh, a chance to deliver prepared remarks and outline uh, their priorities for 2024. The governor herself is doing this too. She's on a tour around the state right now where she's dribbling out what seem to be the main proposals of her state of the state address, which she will deliver in full next Tuesday in the Capitol. So we got a little bit of a preview, it sounds like, of what the state legislature's priorities are going to be in 2024. And what I thought was interesting, and our, one of our Capitol correspondents, Raga Justin, wrote the curtain raiser on this that we published this morning. What I thought was interesting is that both, both the Senate majority leader and the assembly speaker talked about housing as a major focus over this legislative session, which the reason I thought that was interesting is because there was a lot of talk about housing. Last year, of course, it was probably the main component of Governor Hochul's State of the State address and certainly of her budget proposal, this so-called housing compact that she said would um, call for and incentivize the creation of 800,000 new homes in New York State. Um, Of course, that famously did not come to pass, and Hochul said that she is not going to propose a similar kind of sweeping housing package this year. <laughs> For the legislature to make that their main priority suggests maybe a little bit of a misalignment. The governor is saying that the governor is not saying that this isn't an issue, but it seems like she's a bit bruised by the experience of last year when she and the assembly couldn't, couldn't really get the various, um, stakeholders all on the same page here yeah that that is definitely a misalignment if if their agenda is housing and and she's not looking to make any major things happening in housing uh it's definitely a misalignment there yeah the the challenge is going to be in in kind of finding compromises between the advocates who are championing more tenant protection such as good cause eviction legislation and lower cost housing such as staking like more uh affordable housing requirements to development incentives with um, satisfying developers who say anyway that they would like to build more housing in New York State, but it has to be uh, profitable for them. Like in, in her, so in her speech, Andrew Stewart-Cousins, Senate Majority Leader, she seemed to, she didn't outright, but she seemed to tacitly endorse good cause eviction, which has been a target of landlords so-called landlords' rights groups in the real estate industry on the local level. They're instead pushing for an extension of a tax break that's called 421A. We'll see how, how this plays out. Of course, it's probably even a bigger issue this year than last year 
if for no reason than the failure to get anything done yeah. at the state level last year. And also, of course, the thing that has happened since then is the increase in um, migrants and asylum seekers who are coming to New York City, many of whom are then eventually being bused further upstate, which is exacerbating our already um, affordable housing and availability crisis. So we'll see. There's, uh, you know, we're probably not going to know too much more about this until next week when uh, when lawmakers return to Albany for the next um, session date, which will be on Monday. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, Hochul's State of the State on Tuesday will clearly lay out what her priorities are. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a, the lawmakers are back, so definitely it's a new year. And housing is such a, you said it right, it is a crisis, it's happening. Something we have to keep an eye on and definitely keep reporting on to bring this issue to light. Let's talk about the throughway. There was a suspect in Albany shooting, in an Albany shooting was killed in a throughway shootout with state troopers after being pulled over in Rockland County. Why was he a suspect? And what can you tell us about this story? Yeah, so this was a story that was breaking late yesterday afternoon. I don't, I don't know, like at least a several, at least a couple lanes at the southbound throughway there in Ramapo in Rockland County were shut down because state police, uh, and I think also Rockland County police and town, town of Ramapo police pulled over a vehicle that they had identified as being driven by a suspect in a shooting earlier that day up in Albany. So, they were able to track him, hit the, the, there's security camera footage of this man entering his vehicle after doing this shooting, allegedly up in Albany earlier on Wednesday afternoon. And they were able to read the license plate in the security camera footage. And the state police were essentially tracking him as he was driving south on the throughway. We're not really clear where he was headed. But every time you would drive through the toll tags, it, it would, it reads your license plate. They eventually stopped him and pulled him over in Ramapo. And he, according to state police, opened fire on troopers and they in turn returned fire. One trooper was hurt with minor injuries. It's unclear at this point if he was actually shot or that if he sustained an injury in the crash. The suspect was killed. And he seemed to get out of his car at some point. There's some pretty graphic photos and videos circulating of all the cars pulled over and, and the confrontation there on the throughway. So this brought an end to this short search for a man who allegedly was involved in this shooting earlier in the day. And it, and it really disrupted throughway traffic yesterday during rush hour uh, and, and became a, a big story. I, I, I know that ABC and, and CBS from the city were out there. I think the ABC helicopter was out there too. It's a big story and, and one that there's certainly going to be more reporting on. So the name of the man who was shot um, had not been released, nor the name of the victim in the shooting up in uh, Albany had been released at this point. So we don't really know who these individuals are or what the motive might have been. That's something that we're going to be working on in the coming days. On the throughway, there was a planned closing to repair a damaged overpass, but it seems like the expected weather coming this weekend has changed plans. Yeah, this is something that was just announced late this morning. Last week, the throughway authority said that they were going to, they needed to remove this damaged overpass in New Paltz 
that had been struck by overhyped vehicles like repeatedly. The overpass has actually been closed since May, but in order to take it down, they needed to close the northbound lanes of the throughway between exits 17 and 18, which are the exits for New Paltz or for Newburgh and for New Paltz. So they were going to close the road there starting at uh, 7 p.m. on Saturday, and it was going to remain closed for at least 12 hours. So it was going to impact um, probably early morning Sunday traffic and certainly late night Saturday traffic. Would have been, you know, a pretty significant disruption. And even after it reopened, it wasn't going to fully reopen. They were just going to reopen one lane at a time, basically. However, they, due to the weather forecast, they have, they announced this morning that they're postponing that work. The latest forecast call for, you know, upwards of six inches of snow in the mid Hudson Valley starting Saturday night, basically, which is exactly when they were going to be working. The throughway will, in fact, be open, still probably going to be pretty dangerous or at least inadvisable to, to be driving on it at that time because of that's going to be the height of the snowstorm. But that's the latest news there. The Thruway Authority has not yet announced yet when they're going to reschedule this work. So originally, they were also going to close it next weekend as well on the southbound side to complete the removal of the overpass. So I'm not sure yet if they're still going to close the southbound lanes next weekend or if they'll close the northbound lanes next weekend and the southbound lanes the week the weekend after, or if they come up with a whole new plan altogether. All of this, of course, will be dependent on the weather, which, as we talked about last week, is, uh, I think, more and more unpredictable. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely unpredictable. We would expect six inches in the Hudson Valley, but who knows? I may, may get nothing. That's how this uh, yeah. unpredictable has been. Uh, all these stories yeah. are online at timesunion.com. We were talking to the Hudson Valley Bureau Managing Editor, Philip Pantuso, about all the news that's happening in the Hudson Valley. Thank you so much, Philip, for joining us on the program. Thanks, and happy 2024. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I don't know where You're listening to The Local Edition. Winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. I'm Nagin Farsad, filling in for Peter Sagal. And this week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we ring in the new year in the traditional way, listening to interviews with our favorite guests, plus some you've never heard before. We've got brand new conversations with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and journalist Bob Woodruff, Plus, we revisit our time with old friends Brad Paisley and Damian Lillard. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. I'm Ira Plato. When did you first get captivated by science? Astronaut Leland Melvin says his interest was sparked literally when his mother gave him a chemistry set. You know, I created this explosion. I burned her carpet. She ran in the room and, you know, I got a spanking, but my brain was activated to science. Activate your brain to science on Science Friday on Radio Catskill. Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Welcome back to the local edition. The News Lab at Penn State and Spotlight PA have launched Center Documenters, 
a program where community members take notes on local government meetings in townships across rural Center County, Pennsylvania. The documenters are paid for their work, provide meeting notes via newsletters, texting services, and programs websites. Here to tell us more is Maggie Massette, director of the News Lab at Penn State University. Maggie, welcome to the program. Let's talk about how this program came to be. Absolutely. Penn State is located in Penner County. And like all communities across America, we are having conversations and experiencing what folks consider news deserts, right? But what we've been talking about and considering is a news desert isn't just the lack of a paper or the lack of reporters, but it's also about considering what news gaps we have, what those existing papers are able to cover. Um, Locally, we realized that one of the challenges that the existing newsrooms that we do have, and we're pretty lucky that we have um, a far more robust uh, news landscape for a rural county, but not all of the 25 townships in the county um, can be covered by every single paper. For example, we are currently focusing on six townships in our county. And just to cover six townships, you need to have folks uh, to cover 30 meetings in a month. But we have 25 townships in our county. And so Documenters is really inspired by um, programs that already exist nationally to help us think about how our community can have greater access to information about the decisions that are being made in local meetings, about the conversations taking place in local meetings, proposals being brought forth, and community members coming forward asking their own questions. Now, you're just talking about the number of meetings. Are you also counting like the planning board meetings, the zoning board meetings, or these just focus on the town board meetings? So we're, we are focused on what I would consider the five or six main meetings that are taking place in these townships. Our team is currently only covering six of the 25, but those six represent what we considered townships that are nearby enough that we can actually access, but that also are less likely to be covered by our radio station or by our local paper or by the local Spotlight PA Bureau, just for the pure practicality of manpower. Um, But that means that we are in there in water meetings, sewer meetings, supervisor meetings, and more. I'm I'm just curious, what has been the reaction, not only from the public, but also from, say, town board members or the zoning board members? I think the first challenge that I like to bring up that I don't know if everyone expected is making sure that we are educating folks in the community the difference between a documenter who is truly a note taker. They are a an educated or trained citizen who's attending meetings with the pure intention of observing, listening, and taking notes. They're not returning home and writing a story and filing a story for the newspaper or the radio. They are there just to take notes and document through the eyes of a slightly possibly more informed citizen. And 
that becomes confusing a bit in the beginning because we have to make sure that the community understands these aren't journalists. They're just there to be the eyes and ears of the community, uh, in part because everybody doesn't have the ability to attend those meetings. Um, we have those 25 townships. Some of those townships serve 1,500 people, let's say, and those 1,500 people may not know that the meeting is happening unless they're looking at their local township website um, or they might not be able to access it for transportation reasons or for work-related reasons. And so we consider these note-takers or these documenters as the eyes and ears for citizens, for local residents. They are not journalists. And that part has become a little bit complicated at times um, because this is new. And what we're doing is making sure that our notes, in addition to what the township should be making available to community members, which is meeting minutes, we're making sure that our notes are available to community members through our website, centerdocumenters.org, but also through a twice monthly newsletter. That newsletter is doing our best to just link folks to those meeting notes, but to also possibly highlight some meeting notes that we think community members should be more aware um, of maybe a decision that was made or a conversation that was brought up. First and foremost, I think the ability to make sure that the community knows what the documenter's job is and how it's different from journalists, because even though we're addressing a coverage gap and we're helping in a news desert situation, we aren't journalists or the documenters aren't journalists. That said, we have a community partner in Spotlight PA who is supporting us with getting the newsletter out and supporting us in just reviewing those notes. It also means that Spotlight and the local radio station and any other media outlet that wants to know what has happened um, that doesn't have the ability to send a reporter can look at those notes before the township's meeting minutes might make the website. If they're making the website at all, that was one of the challenges that we experienced in the beginning. Um, and so our documenters have learned a tremendous amount of what's actually um, challenging about covering these meetings, whether they're community members or journalists. Sometimes those meetings are not well advertised, or sometimes those meetings get canceled and nobody knows until they arrive to a dark township meeting or a dark township building. And so the documenters are learning what the challenges are for everyday citizens to access these meetings. In our pilot phase in the spring of last year, we realized about 50% of the meetings we tried to attend didn't actually happen. Yeah, you just mentioned some of the challenges. Smaller townships, I noticed, are struggling to keep up with the times and having this, even their agendas on the website updated or have the minutes posted and updated in a timely uh, fashion that's required. And I, I said, you say your documenters are realizing they're running into those types of situations. Absolutely. However, I think just purely existing and having the documenters attend meetings, we've seen quite quickly a shift in each of those townships, um, making sure that they're letting us know at the very least that a meeting might be canceled. We knew that something had changed when um, Jeremy Laguerre, our student um, managing editor, who's in touch with the townships the mornings before meetings are supposed to happen to confirm whether or not it's going to happen, um, 
we noticed a real change when cancellations were known by the township and they reached out to him. And so we're starting to see that they're realizing we need to make sure that the community knows if a meeting is going to be canceled. Um, it's also seemingly a little bit easier to get your hands on an agenda before the meeting. And I'm starting to see that meeting minutes are getting posted faster. In some cases, meeting minutes weren't being posted. In fact, there were some township sites where if you went in to look for an agenda or meeting minutes, we found blank pages. And so we're starting to see some of those changes, which is really important, um, not only for the community in terms of access to information, but to make sure that the townships are following the law. The Pennsylvania Sunshine Act requires them to do these things. I think they're realizing that someone's there watching in a way, taking notes, and so they want to be more accountable. Absolutely. It's, it is a form of accountability journalism, even if these documenters are not journalists. So, what I'm curious, what was the sort of the demographic of the documentaries? Are they mostly students, or are these also the general public uh, who have been in, involved? At the moment, these are students, and they're students across disciplines. We have students in journalism, students in education, in geography, in um, engineering, and we're really interested in having students attend these. Not only thinking about how our local government functions um, and being able to understand what's discussed at these meetings, but also for many of them to think about how what's happening at these meetings apply to their future careers. Um, the goal in the long run is to have a hybrid of Penn State students and local community members so that one Penn State student and one community member can attend meetings together. Documenters always work in pairs, and that's part of both making sure that they can discuss what happened in the meeting, to confirm that their meeting uh, notes that they've taken are accurate to the best of their ability, and to go through a fact-checking process that is a little different than what we see inside of a newsroom. It is a fact-checking process that is about trying to get who said what correctly, um, making sure that they go back and listen to their own audio recording that they've just taken on their phone to confirm that maybe they get a direct quotation or a summary correct. But they're not taking those extra steps to call and get more information from someone. They're really just documenting that meeting. And that process really increases their day-to-day -day knowledge. So it's really important that we start once we really grow, we start getting community members alongside these Penn State students so that the community members are also benefiting from the increased knowledge across each of these meetings. Um, one of the challenges, which would be for both students and community members, is understanding what people are talking about, understanding the language of a water meeting or a sewer meeting. It's not so easy for somebody just to arrive at a planning meeting and understand every single thing that they are talking about. And so the ability for these documenters to regularly attend the same meetings is going to be pretty critical. Maggie, before we go, is there anything else that we have not touched on Do you want folks to know? I just want to say that what we're doing is not brand new. This came from a national program um, out of City Bureau in Chicago, and it's been very successful in cities across the country. I think that what we're doing, and there are a few other newsrooms and community organizations that are also starting to do this, 
is taking something that has worked really well in a city and figuring out how to serve a rural community. There's a few that I know that are getting off the ground at the same time that are inspired by the national network that Center Documenters is a part of. I know that Granite State News Collaborative has launched something in New Hampshire called CivDoc that is inspired from the Documenters program launched out of Chicago initially and the national network. I also am really excited about something coming out of Bismarck, North Dakota, in collaboration with the Indigenous Media Alliance, where they're starting to train folks to cover tribal meetings, which is really important. This is our way, and I think it's something that every community needs to think about. What are we going to do to help make sure that we all understand what's happening in our communities locally. And that information is not only accessible, but it is understandable and available to community members. We were talking to Maggie Massett, director of the News Lab at Penn State Penn University, talking about the Center Documenters, a program where community members take notes on local government meetings. You can find this article on our website, wjffradio.org. And that does it for the local edition. Visit our website, wjffradio.org. This is Radio Casco, your NPR station. Have a good night, Lucy. Tune in tomorrow, where we talk to Chris Rowley from the Schwankuk Journal. Take care. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring deli sandwiches, gourmet specials, and catering. The NeversinkGeneralStore.com. From the River Reporter, the community newspaper covering four counties in Pennsylvania and New York along the Upper Delaware River. Riverreporter.com. And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. Local news, culture, and NPR.